evening, everybody. My name is Andy Callis, if you don't know me, and I'm the student pastor here at Cape Bible Chapel. We are glad to have you guys with us this evening, almost said this morning, this evening. And um, I wanted to start out just by, by talking about my job a little bit. If you don't know much about youth ministry, sometimes it involves gross and silly stuff. In fact, it's, it's kind of a staple into what we do. And uh, sometimes stuff like this is planned, sometimes it's not, and oftentimes it involves eating or drinking something that's nasty. And uh, not too long ago, and this was a, an unplanned thing, we had an event, and we had some students, about six students that were still left, waiting for their parents to come and get them, and we had some random um, edible items that were in the cafe, just on the countertop, and it didn't take long for somebody to say, you know... What if we combined all this stuff together? I wonder if somebody would drink it. And so the items were salsa, Coca-Cola, pepper, and the kicker, expired milk. So that got poured in a cup, stirred up a little bit, and it didn't take long for Drew Roth to say, hey, I'll drink that because wagers were being made. Oh, nobody's going to drink that. I'll give five bucks to anybody that'll even drink a little bit of that. And Drew's like, five bucks? I'm there. So Drew jumps in, has some winces and kind of some head turns, but he drinks about half of the cup down to the amazement of everybody else that was watching. And it was awfully gross. He said that one saving grace was all the salsa stayed at the bottom. So, um, but it, it it was pretty gross. Drew drank down some nasty stuff that day. And as I was going through... And thinking about what to talk about tonight, I was reading the gospel accounts, and the word that stood out to me the most as I was reading, for whatever reason, was the cup. And the cup is mentioned a couple times uh, in the gospels around the time of Jesus' crucifixion. When Jesus was in the garden, he prayed, he said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done in Luke twenty-two forty-two. And again, he tells Peter, after Peter cuts off the ear of the, the uh, high priest's servant, he says, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me in John eighteen eleven? So whatever was in this cup was something that was going to be tough. It was going to be difficult, but it was also something that Jesus felt like that he alone needed to drink this down to the last drop. Whatever was in this cup, what was in the cup? What was in the cup was the wrath of God. And Jesus was willing to drink the cup of God's wrath toward our sin down to the last drop 2,000 years ago on Good Friday. And God's wrath is really, it's not a hot topic um, today. It's not uh, a hot topic that you're going to hear in churches and certainly not a hot topic that you're going to hear out in our culture. Um, To think that there is a God who has a standard of right, and if that standard is broken, that he is going to be so offended that he will severely punish someone for that, just seems like kind of a medieval, archaic um, thing for us, sometimes maybe even in the, ch- in the churches that are uh, in our country, but especially in our culture that's tolerant, that's enlightened. But we never draw the truth about who God is from the ups and the downs of the culture. We draw that from his word, and his word has a lot to say about his wrath. So a couple things tonight we want to ask, well, why is God so upset? 
What is God so upset about? What does God's anger look like? Does that look like man's anger? Is that different? And I hope to answer those questions for you tonight. So, you know, why is God so upset? Aren't, aren't anger and wrath typically emotions that when we see those, they quickly just spin out of control uh, when we see anger and wrath? And it seems like knowing God that he would never be the kind of God where he would be out of control of himself. Well, God's wrath and his anger is quite different than ours. So I think that's the first thing we need to look at tonight. Human anger and wrath are rarely good and they are rarely justified. Sometimes, but usually not. James tells us to be slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. In James 1, 19 through 20, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7, 9, he said, do not be quickly provoked in your spirit for anger resides in the lap of fools. Can people be angry and not be sinful or not be foolish? Yes. Do you typically see that happen? No, not often. More oftentimes, our anger, our wrath is a knee-jerk reaction to somebody damaging our pride or somebody infringing on our perceived rights. So somebody gets in my way, they slander my name, uh, they don't get me what I think I deserve, and I'm going to let them know it. I'm going to get them back. I'm going to scream at them. Or maybe I'll do the opposite. I'll give them the silent treatment. Or I'm going to hold a grudge against that person, but I'm going to make sure that they feel some kind of pain for what they've done to me. That's often how human anger works. Not really calculated oftentimes. Sometimes it can be. Oftentimes just a knee-jerk reaction, an explosion at times. Comes out in different ways. And for people, it's not so much about the person and that person doing something wrong. It's that that person did something wrong to me. That's what I'm really concerned about, is I'm concerned about myself, and I'm going to make sure that they pay for it. A great example of this would be road rage. We've all been there. I'm not there as much as I used to be, so I'm growing in that, but it still happens sometimes. And um, somebody cuts you off in traffic, okay? And you throw up your hands in disgust. You yell at them. You scream at them. You lay on the horn. You want to let them know you got in my way. If you're really bold, you pull up next to them at the light. You glare at them. You cast just a mean look. Or if you're super bold, you roll down the window, you yell at them, and then as soon as it turns green, just to show your disgust, you speed off and show them how you're faster than them, you know? So that's how road rage can play out sometimes. Hopefully that didn't happen to you on the way here or anything. But what are we mad at when we have road rage? What are we mad at? Are we mad at, you know what, you could have potentially harmed me or maybe even yourself. That's what I'm upset about here. Or are we upset because, you know what, you broke a law of the United States government and our local government, and you didn't use a blinker, and that is upsetting to me. You broke a law. Those aren't the things that make us upset, right? It has nothing to do with that. It just has everything to do with, you got in my way. I want you to know that. You stepped on my my supposed rights that I have. Well, God's anger is not like ours, okay? It's not like that. God's anger and wrath, it's not knee-jerk. It's settled, it's consistent, it's just, it's passionate, it's hot, it's steady, and it's unchanging, and it's eternal. That's what God's anger and what God's wrath is like. There's two Greek words that describe God's wrath primarily in the New Testament. Those words are orge and thumos. Orge and thumos. This is interesting when I was studying this. I want to share this with you. So, Orge, it's the, it's the inner emotion of anger or wrath. So it's a 
settled abiding condition of the mind. Um, this inner emotion. So God's anger against sin is constant. It's steady. It hasn't changed since day one when sin entered the picture. He has consistently, steadily hated sin ever since it first came on the scene. So unlike man, oftentimes what, what does our anger do? Well, I'm mad at this one day, but then the next day it doesn't make me that mad. Or my anger comes and goes, or I change my mind about what makes me mad. Well, God doesn't change. He's consistently and uh, constantly having the same position about sin. And um, in talking about Jonathan, Edmund, Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, a sermon that many have maybe heard or, or heard of even in school, R.C. Sproul comments that Jonathan Edwards made the point that God's wrath is divine, so it's perfect, it's unlike ours, and it's infinite. It never ends. Human wrath terminates. It has an ending point. It's limited. God's wrath can go on forever. Now, thumos, on the other hand, it's the outworking of the emotion. It's probably what we usually think of when we think of anger or wrath. It's the outburst of the inner disgust. It's passionate. It's hot. It's fierce. And again, unlike man, God's outburst of wrath, it's perfectly measured. It's like this is exactly what needs to happen to these people at this time. It's perfectly measured, and it's, he is perfectly under control. No matter how it looks to us, when we see God's wrath in different places in Scripture, we might think, wow, it's to God, it's, it's the perfect measure that needed to happen at that time, and he is perfectly in control of his anger and his wrath. Again, Sproul comments on Edward's sermon about the fierceness of God's wrath. He says, the Bible repeatedly likens God's wrath to a wine press of fierceness. In hell, there is no moderation or mercy given. What a thought. God's anger is not mere annoyance or mild displeasure. It's a consuming rage against the unrepentant. So God is able to keep both this inner steady emotion that he has towards sin and the outworking of wrathful action. He keeps those in perfect balance with perfect justice every single time. And there's times in the New Testament where you see these words used side by side, the inner emotion, the outworking, <clears throat> and the action. One of those places, interesting enough, is in Revelation 16, 19. So in Revelation 16, 19, to give you some context, what has happened up to this point is the seven seal judgments have already happened, followed by the seven trumpet judgments, and followed finally by the seven bowl judgments. There has been more destruction on the earth than the world has ever seen. War, death, earthquakes, hailstones, rivers dried up, seas turned to blood, scorching heat, vegetation destroyed. In all this, we see God's settled and determined wrath, yet his fierce anger against sin. It says this in Revelation 16, 19. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury and of his wrath. God pours out his cup of furious wrath on rebellious sinners. The wrath, the orge, the settled, unending hatred of, of, of God against sin, and the fury, the thumos, the passionate, heated action towards sin. So God's wrath and God's anger, okay? It's, it's different than ours. Um, it's perfect. It's something to be feared. 
It's something to be in awe of. It's something to worship him for. And it's certainly something that we don't personally want to be the object of. So if we go back to our other question, so we've talked about anger and what does that look like from God's angle and from ours. It's different. Why is God so upset? What, what is it? Why is God so upset about sin? And I think the number one reason is he's not getting the worship and the glory that he deserves. I think that's his number one reason. So imagine this. You have God, the outright owner and creator of everything, the king of everything, who deserves all the credit, all the praise, everything seen and unseen, yet he's not getting it. And he hasn't been getting it for a long time, since Genesis chapter 3, right? He has not been getting the praise and the credit that he deserves for thousands and thousands of years, and he's had innumerable attempts at stealing his glory. And who's doing that? Well, we are. That's what people are doing, trying to steal God's glory. And God gave man a great position to rule over the earth in his creation, but that wasn't enough. They wanted to dethrone him. So just like in Isaiah 14, when Satan's described as one who wanted to exalt his throne above God, mankind has done the same thing. And sin is attempted glory stealing in the first degree, and billions of people have been doing it for thousands and thousands of years. And God is jealous for his glory. He's not going to stand to the side and just watch that happen. It says in Exodus 34, 14, Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. He is jealous for his glory. He's jealous for his praise. And he says, I'm not going to share that with anybody else. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I'm the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. Yet in so many ways, he's not getting what he deserves. And I would expect God to be angry about that, wouldn't you? If you're in that position, I would expect God to be awfully upset about that and to do something about it. Because if he didn't, be like, well, that's kind of a weak God. He can't even defend his own name from his own rebellious creation that he made. Or, you know, maybe God's not powerful enough or he doesn't care enough. No, he does. He's powerful enough and he does care enough about his own name and his own glory. And he's going to punish those who don't obey. He promises to do this. So, He's poured, he will pour out his cup of wrath on sinners in the future, as we looked at in Revelation 16. He's done that on people in the past, in the Old Testament. We look at Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah speaks of God's cup of wrath being poured out on his own people in Jerusalem and on the nations. He declares that the people aren't going to want to drink the cup of my wrath. They're not going to want to drink it, but they're going to have to, and they're going to drink it down to the last drop, like it or not. In Jeremiah 25, verses 15 through 19, it says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup, filled with the wine of my wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger, they will go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand, and I made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it. Starting with Jerusalem, his own people, Jerusalem and the towns of Judea, its kings and officials, to make them a ruin and an object of horror and scorn, a curse as they are today. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his attendants, his officials, and all his people. And he goes on and lists more kings and more people groups and more nations. And later, in somewhat graphic language, the Lord declares, Then tell them, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Drink, get drunk, and vomit, and fall to rise no more because of the sword that I will send among you. 
But if they refuse to take the cup from your hand and drink, tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty says, you must drink it. See, I'm beginning to bring disaster on the city that bears my name, and will you indeed go unpunished? You will not go unpunished, for I am calling down a sword on all who live on the earth, declares the Lord Almighty. So God's cup of wrath is poured out in a fierce way on all sinners and even on his own nation. A lot of doom and gloom, right? Why do we need to hear all this heavy talk about God's wrath? And I think it's because if we don't, we're not going to appreciate his solution. We certainly won't appreciate the cross and what happened to Jesus when he chose to drink that cup. We need to know how fierce the anger of God is towards sin and even personally toward our own sin. Did you know that before you were in Christ, the Bible says your title was a child of wrath? That was one of your titles before Christ. In Ephesians 2.3, it says, among whom also you were once conducted, we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And Jesus said in John 3:36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him or remains on him. That hot, settled, passionate, consistent, anger toward your sin set squarely on you. It rested on you every day, day in and day out. Everywhere you went, you could not get out from under it. And as Jeremiah said, you, you would have to drink it whether you wanted to or not. The wrath of God remained on you before you were in Christ. And maybe even more chilling than that is there might be some people here that you're still under that wrath. You, you have the wrath of God as we speak right now, his hot, settled anger towards sin resting on you. I hope that's not the case for anybody here. But here's the deal. At the end of the day, someone is drinking the cup of God's wrath for your sin in your life. Somebody is going to drink it. It's either going to be you for all of eternity in hell, or you let Jesus drink it for you. So just as God gave this cup to Judah and to the nations he offered this cup to his own perfect son. And so Jesus said in John 18, 11, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He's given me this mission. He's given me this cup of his wrath. Shall I not drink it? But after seeing just some of the things we talked about, the absolute terror of the wrath of God, we understand how Jesus in his humanity didn't desire it. If there was any other way that man's salvation could be accomplished, he wanted to do that, and that's why he said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. When Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath and he was crucified, he became sin. The perfect son of God who, who knew no sin became sin. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. And this is why darkness spread across the land. Whenever Jesus um, <clears throat> was being crucified, God was judging the sin of the entire world on his son. This is why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He became the very thing that God hates for us. Years ago, I read a uh, dramatic interpretation of just what happened on the cross whenever Jesus accepted the sin of the entire world upon himself, and it really stuck with me. And uh, I wanted to share that with you guys tonight. 
and uh, it's an account from a book called When God Weeps by Johnny Erickson Tata and Stephen Estes. And I want to read an excerpt for you, just kind of giving a dramatic um, interpretation of really what was going on when Jesus was hanging on the cross. It says, but these physical pains Jesus experienced are a mere warm-up to the other and growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during this day, an unearthly foul odor began to waft, not around his nose, but his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being, the living excrement from our souls. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. His father... He must face his father like this? From heaven the father now rouses himself like a lion disturbed and shakes his mane and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on the cross. Never has the son seen the father look at him so. Never felt even the least of his hot breath, but the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The son doesn't recognize these eyes. Son of man... Why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered. You've envied, hated, and lied. You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Oh, the duties that you've shirked, the children that you've abandoned. Who has ever so ignored the poor, so played the coward, so belittled my name? Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk. You peddle killer drugs, travel in cliques, and mock your parents. You gave the boldness to rig elections, incite revolutions, torture animals, and worship demons. Does the list never end? Splitting families, rape, acting smugly, buying politicians, practicing extortion, filming pornography, accepting bribes, You've burned down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics, founded false religions, traded in slaves, relishing each morsel and bragging about it all. I hate, loathe these things in you. Can you not feel my wrath? Of course, the son is innocent. He is blamelessness itself. And the father knows this. But the divine pair have an agreement, and the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. The father watches as his heart's treasure, the mere image of himself, sinks, drowning into raw, liquid sin. Jehovah's stored wrath against humankind from every century explodes in a single direction. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops its ears. The sun stares up at the one who cannot, who will not, reach down or reply. The Trinity had planned it. The Son endured it. The Spirit enabled him. The Father rejected the Son whom he loved. Jesus, the God-man from Nazareth, perished. The Father accepted his sacrifice for sin and was satisfied. The rescue was accomplished. Maybe there's some sins on that list where you're like, I identify with that. I know that I do. And I read that account and I think, God, that's not right. I deserve that. I deserve that punishment. God, don't punish him. 
I'm the one that deserves it. I'm the accused, not him. But because Christ became sin for us, it goes on in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it continues, it says, now we can become the righteousness of God. All of our sins, the worst ones that we can imagine, the ones that we're ashamed of, the ones that we don't want to talk about or let anybody know about, all of it dumped on him. And his righteousness placed on us. All of it poured out on me. Now that is God's amazing grace. And when we repent of our sins and we receive it by faith, it's ours. It's a gracious gift by God's faith or by God's grace. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. He bore our sins. He drank the cup of God's wrath. He completed the rescue mission to save our souls so that we could return to the Lord. On the cross, he paid the price in full for all of those sins that we can identify with. He paid the price in full, completely forgiven. Colossians 2, 13 through 14 says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. We are alive, though once we were dead. We are forgiven, though once we were condemned. And as the psalmist has said in Psalm 103:12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Jesus' love for us to be willing to take that cup, knowing what was coming, there is no greater love. Isn't that amazing? He took the cup of God's wrath, he drank it to the last drop so we could be free on Good Friday 2,000 years ago. So my hope for you and myself is that this weekend, the praise of what he's done, that that is in our hearts, that that is on our lips.